Well, thank you, Steve. Good morning to you. Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, uh, I'm sorry about the weather. And it was warmer at Christmas, wasn't it? Man, isn't that disappointing? You get all ready to come and, you know, not have to wear a rain jacket. And now we're doing this. Uh, so this is the last gasp of winter in Charleston. Then get ready. For, you'll have about nine or ten months of 100-degree weather. That's how it works here. Uh, so if you're new, hey, my name is Steve. You picked a great Sunday to join us. Happy Easter to you and to your family if you're traveling or if you're new to our church or maybe new to the city. Uh, if you've got a Bible, I'd like you to go ahead and grab it. Um, you know, an Easter message, if you, know, if you ever uh, want to preach, uh, Easter message is a little weird to preach because uh, it's like going to see a stand-up comic and you know the punchline of every single joke. Uh, you know where this message is headed. Uh, we've already talked about it. We've already sung about it. We've already greeted each other uh, that he is risen. Uh, so it's really hard as a preacher to get creative on Easter, isn't it? Uh, you don't really know what to do except to lay out uh, the story as we have it in the scriptures once again because it's a great story, right? It's the most important story of the Christian church. Uh, in fact, it's so compelling that every single Easter, you just want to hear it again, don't you? You want to remind yourself of what he has done and how uh, there is victory in Jesus. And, and we sung that, and, and uh, you've already done that already. So uh, what we're going to do here this morning is look at Matthew chapter 28. So as I said, if you got a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and grab it, find Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew and the shelf right there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. You read it till the cover falls off. Come on back, get another one, and uh, we'd love to give you another one. Uh, so Matthew 28. Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. Uh, if you open up the New Testament, we're going to be in the very last chapter of the very uh, first book. And before we are kind of as you're turning there, before we get into what we're going to talk about here today, I'd like you to consider just for a minute uh, the resurrection story, which we'll look at here in just a moment. But I'd like you to consider maybe this year uh, or in the past several weeks or months, I'd like you to consider the stories that have kind of captured your attention Maybe that's stories that are in the news. Maybe that's stories that are uh, in politics. Maybe uh, you're like our family and you're waiting week by week to find out what happens to Baby Yoda, who is not Baby Yoda. Which I don't... That everybody in our family is invested in this story of the Mandalorian and trying to find out what is going to happen from week to week and event to event. And our, our hearts and our minds are so wrapped up in the characters. And as they're being developed, we're interested to know what happens to these characters in this story set in a fictional universe far, far away. Uh, maybe you're different than sci-fi. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe it's sports. And you're really into the athletes and the competition and the tension that happens in the off-season and you're invested in a particular team. I made the mistake, maybe if you're not a part of our church, I made the mistake of mentioning Texas several weeks ago. And like the whole, the whole room exploded in anguish and angst. It just so happens we were talking about Satan that day too. So it was like, it was this weird like... Just weird for me as a preacher. Uh, maybe you follow, maybe your thing is kind of sitcoms and dramas. Maybe you're a real world fan. Nobody watches real world anymore. Uh, maybe you're into, I don't know, The Bachelor. Whatever the new sitcom is, the drama out there that pulls you into the relationships uh, that are going on. But no matter who you are, we all love a good story. 
We all love the development of characters and the narrative tension and the plot and the high points and the low points in stories because we, we get invested in them and we feel like we participate in the stories that we watch. And they give us, really, stories give us a way to make sense of our life. So maybe if it's not any of those things, you maybe would consider the story of your own life. And if you go back in the story of your own life, you have high points and low points, right? You have certain stories that come to mind that have shaped who you are and how you've arrived here at this point in April in 2023. If you were to sit down and talk with, with me and my own story, I would talk to you about moments that were very key moments in my life that determined where I went to college, that determined what job that I took, that determined whether or not I would move halfway across the country. And I have meaningful, significant stories that as they happened in my life, they shaped me and they shaped who I am. They shaped my outlook on life. They shaped the way I process who God is. They shaped the way that I view myself, the way that I view others, the way I view my kids, the way I view my wife. They're incredibly important to making up the person that stands in front of you today. If you were to talk to my wife, my wife has a story about getting bit by a rat. It's a well-known story in the lore of our family. You can talk to her later. She's serving in kids. She'll be at the 11 o'clock service if you want to come back and hear her story about getting bit by a rat. It's a great story great story. But that you know, and I know that some of the greatest moments of our life are, are formed by these stories, whether they're high points, whether they're low points. They may be low points for you. You recognize seasons of difficulty or sickness or sadness or loss, and you move out of those seasons, and they have profoundly impacted who you are. And when we come today to Matthew chapter 28, and we look at one of the gospel accounts, really all four of the gospel accounts, have the story of the resurrection. What I'd like for us to consider and to meditate on is how our life might look if the story of Jesus' resurrection was the central story in our life. No matter what has happened to us, no matter what kind of experiences we've had or difficulties we've been through or high points or achievements or accomplishments we've had, what if... The resurrection story was the single greatest, most important story in your life. And I think that's what you have here in Matthew's retelling of the resurrection account. What would it look like if Christians, if people, if churches told the singular greatest story in human history in such a way that it characterized all of our relationships, that it characterized our marriages, that it characterized how we parented, that it characterized the kind of men and women we were at work, or the kind of students we were, the kinds of friends we were. What if that was the reality? And that's what I think you're going to see here in Matthew chapter 28. So would you pray with me? And then we'll jump in here together. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we would pray for spiritual insight and wisdom beyond our years, that we might learn things about you today that we might have never seen before. For those who are in the room who've never considered the truth claims of Matthew chapter 28 and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would pray for sensitive hearts and sensitive ears to hear what you might have to say to us this morning through your word. For those who are discouraged and feeling far from you, that I pray the story of the resurrection would stoke the attention and the affections of our hearts and refresh us once again to the reality that Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, death, 
and the grave, and today is alive. So Father, bless us in our desire to know you, to understand the truth of the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 28. Y'all there? If y'all there, say okay. okay. All right, good. You're engaged. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, Jesus has been crucified. He's been in the tomb since Friday. Sabbath is our Saturday. And uh, after the Sabbath, where nobody works, we have the beginning of what now becomes for the Christian church the first day of the week. It's Sunday. In fact, it's Sunday morning. And after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Uh, There are probably more than just these two people who go to the tomb this morning, but Matthew only mentions two. Mary Magdalene, who's had a significant turnaround in her life as a result of meeting Jesus. What we know from the gospel accounts is that Mary Magdalene had seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. The other Mary... Uh, has a couple of sons. This may or may not be uh, Jesus' mother. But early, early in the morning, before dawn, Mary and Mary wake up early. And they head with what Luke tells us is a moderate amount of spices preparing to anoint the body of Christ. They watch Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus down from the cross, lay him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a brand new tomb, wrap the body, cover it with spices, the typical burial practices of the Jews Jews at this time, put him in the tomb, roll the stone in front of the door, and leave. Now, As we begin this story, I just want you to to consider for a moment the mental and emotional experience of these two women. Because as Matthew chapter 28 begins, everything that is about to happen in this chapter is completely unexpected. A resurrection to these women is fiction right now. They have observed Jesus go through the most horrific capital punishment of the time, perhaps in history. The most humiliating and devastating, macabre experience of watching the person they followed for three years be nailed to the cross, flogged, stabbed, pierced, and die. And as we enter into the resurrection story, not one gospel writer records anybody expecting this to happen. There's no extra disciple at the tomb going, I remember what Jesus said. I'm here because I'm waiting for his resurrection. Not one person has listened to Jesus throughout the course of his ministry to be mentally and emotionally prepared for the resurrection. There's nobody standing there saying, I knew it, he was going to rise from the dead. Rather, the scene is what we have captured for us here in verse 2. Mary and Mary did not expect to see what they saw. Look at verse 2 with me. And behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Everything in the scene changes. Mary and Mary are on their way to a graveyard, on their way to the tomb. The sun is not up yet and it's completely dark. 
Mary and Mary arrive on the scene and what they find is a battalion of Roman soldiers who have been tasked by Pilate to both seal the tomb with his seal and to guard the tomb because there is a rumor going around that the disciples are going to come and steal the body. The chief priests think that this is going to happen. So Mary and Mary arrive on the scene and they are greeted with a, with a reversal of everything that you would expect in this scene. The ground that was once stable is now shaking. Their eyes are not drawn to the earth and to the darkness of the moment, but to heaven and to heaven's light. The tomb has moved from being sealed by a large stone that these two women no doubt could not open. The pre-dawn darkness is interrupted by an angelic visitation of lightning-esque pre- uh, stuff. You figure it out. And the soldiers who've been tasked with vigilantly, vigilantly watching this tomb have gone from on guard to catatonic, frozen in shock and fear at the presence of one angel who, and just let me just make a side point here. He rolls the stone back and he sits on it. Isn't that a great picture? (laughs) I I mean, I just love that the angel has just a little bit of sarcasm in him where he goes, let me just rip that back. I'm just going to just wait for these ladies to get here. And the key of of really all, you know, the, the resurrection account and the facts that we're going to see in this passage are going to be explained by the angel. And the key to understanding the resurrection accounts and how we ought to understand them 2,000 years later is really in its interpretation. Because you know this, when you tell your own story, your own story is not just a list of events in your life, right? I was born here, I had this, this is when I lost my first tooth, this is uh, my, first, my first date, this is my first kiss, this is how I got cut from the basketball team as a senior, why they would cut me as a senior, I don't understand. I was better than four or five other guys who were on the team at that time, for example. (laughs) This is where I went to college, right? You don't just list facts about your life. Rather, you interpret the facts and the experiences that have happened to you, right? You interpret, this is how I felt when I made the decision to commit to that school and to say no to this one. This is how I felt when I knew that she was the one, when I knew that he was the one. And to people on the outside, those experiences may be simple, but to you, they're incredibly important, right? Because they have shaped who you are. You've interpreted life in light of those circumstances and those realities. And what the angel is about to do is not just give and list the bare facts of the resurrection. The angel is about to enter into the experience of two women who come no doubt filled with fear, no doubt sorrowful, and no doubt absent any hope of anything being different. And what the angel is going to do is going to take the facts of the resurrection and the angel is going to interpret them for these women. Verse 5, let's look at the angel's interpretation of their experience. But the angel said to the women, in light of the angel being glorious, clothes as white as snow, so incredibly powerful that it causes this group of of well-trained Roman soldiers to fall down in fear, Matthew records that there's a contrast 
In light of the glory, in light of the fear, in light of the earthquake, in light of the stone being moved, this angel turns, and there's a different kind of countenance with these two women. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. He really could respond with any number of things, right? But what the angel shows you in this response is that the angel understands who these women are, why they are there, and what they are hoping for. The angel, in a sense, very simply, is tender. And the angel enters into their emotional experience in light of this glorious, earth-shattering reality and tells them, do not be afraid. Well, why? Why should I not be afraid, Mr. Lightning Pants? And it's followed up with what his interpretation. Why shouldn't I be afraid? I would be afraid if I saw an angel. Why shouldn't I be afraid? For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The way the Greek works in that phrase right there is as if to explain Jesus with an equal term. It's to equate Jesus and the crucified one. So that when Paul in the New Testament talks about things being delivered to the church of utmost importance, he said, a first priority I delivered to you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The angel says the same thing. I know whom you seek is Jesus, the crucified one. So the angel, in effect, understands that things that have happened on earth have a time stamp to them. The events of Jesus' public ministry, the events of his miracles, the events of his betrayal, the, effect, the events of his false imprisonment, the events of an unjust trial, the events of his flogging, his brutal beating, his rejection by his people, his being nailed to the cross, and his death are all facts that the, that the angel takes seriously. I read an article this weekend in the Washington Post. It was written by a guy named John Cook, and John Cook says when you're dealing with the historical Jesus, there's not one person who doubts the fact of Jesus' crucifixion because the crucifixion is so horrible. It's such an embarrassment that nobody doubts that this happened to him. You know where the problem comes? With whether or not he's raised. That's the issue. So the angel says, don't fear because you're seeking the crucified one. Now, why would that be a, re a reason not to fear? Well, suffice to say at this point, I think we can say that the Christian faith is not founded upon fear. Most world religions, generally speaking, are founded generally on fear. That God is up there, somewhere, out there. And what you need to do is make sure that you make him happy with your life. You need to do good stuff. You need to uh, pay your taxes. You need to don't steal pens from work. You need to be nice to people. Definitely don't murder. That's out. Drive the speed limit, maybe, because if you want to, it might, it might be important. But relatively speaking, all world religions point to the fact that we ought to do things for God so that God at the end of your life ought to let you in. And the angel says, Jesus Christ was crucified, therefore do not fear. See, only Christianity has a God who will die for you. 
Only Christianity has a Jesus who will be nailed to a cross for the sins of those who will put their faith in him. So the angel right from the beginning says, don't fear, Jesus has died. Now is that good news? It's good news for, the, for Mary here. Because if Jesus was crucified, he was crucified for sin. He was crucified for something he did not do. He took my sin and he took your sin to the cross and he paid the penalty on the cross for our sin. So that all who put their trust and their faith in him might be completely justified in God's sight, made right in their relationship with God. So that the foundation of the story that the angel is telling is don't be afraid, Jesus has died. But it gets better than that. Look at verse 6. And verse 6 is really just, they're just punctuated statements that don't really need a lot of explanation. Verse 6, he's not here. Well, that's pretty simple, right? In effect, the angel is saying to Mary and Mary, you're in the wrong place. You're looking for him in a place that he is not. There's no reason you should be looking for Jesus in a graveyard. Luke puts it like this, which I think is great. It, sa it says of the, uh, the women that they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground and the, the uh, angel said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that great? Why do you seek the living among the dead? For, now here's another explanation. Don't fear, for he was, you are seeking the one who was crucified. He's not here, for he has, he has, he's risen. Literally, he's been raised from the dead, as he said. You know, through the course of uh, Matthew's gospel, five different times Jesus predicts his betrayal, his being handed into the, or being put into, betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. He predicts his death. He predicts three days, and he predicts that he's going to be risen from the dead. Five different times, Jesus says, this is coming, this is what's going to happen, here's what's going to happen on the other side. Now, I think if you can pull off predicting your own betrayal, flogging, death, burial, and resurrection, we ought to listen to what you say. You with me? What do you think? This is what he said. What's the angel thing? The angel thinks Jesus was right. The angel thinks Jesus pulled off one of the singular greatest miracles of all time because he predicted the future and then it was fulfilled. He has risen as he said, and I love this. Boy, I just love that the angel understands us. It's as if the angel takes the women by the hand and he says, don't take my word for it. He takes them by the hand and he walks them. He gets off the stone. He takes their hands and he takes them to the mouth of the tomb and he says, come and see where he lay. Come and see that he's not here. Verse 7. Now, if this story is true, then it demands a response, right? If Jesus has risen from the dead and conquered Satan, sin, and death, then this story demands a response, and it also demands direction. The angel now, in light of Jesus' absence in the tomb, now directs the women to do something. Look at verse 7. They go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. 
If the core message of Christianity is don't fear, Jesus is risen, then there is no more important message for anyone anywhere to hear than this. Because death haunts us all, doesn't it? We all know it's coming. We all may put it out of our mind for a little bit of time, but inevitably we're drawn to the reality that our bodies are not getting stronger, our bodies are getting weaker. We're not getting faster, we're getting slower. We're not getting more healthy, we're facing more issues. Your knees hurt like my knees hurt? And if the fact is that Jesus rose from the dead and the core message of Christianity is do not fear, Jesus is risen, then it demands being told. And Mary and Mary are invited, now told, and say, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Now watch the verbs and watch all the, how the, all the verbs change. Everything up to this point has been uh, past tense. And now, in light of what has happened in the past, I'm supposed to do something now that will affect the future. Go quickly and tell, present tense, that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Okay, I've got to take your word for it, angel, and do something that I have to do so that I will see him on my way to Galilee. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Imagine for a second what it might feel like to have both simultaneously fear and great joy. Is that a complex emotion? What an incredibly complex emotion that Matthew gives for us in the hearts of these women. Do they believe it yet? I don't even know. They're still filled with fear, but they've just heard the most joyous, wonderful, fantastic message they've ever heard that the Savior that they've followed that has done incredible spiritual work in their lives to give them freedom is now alive and filled with fear, anticipation, excitement, great joy, all of that jumbled up in the human heart. They run to tell his disciples. They're filled with emotional intensity and it makes its way into their feet. They run and tell the disciples and verse nine says, behold, Jesus met them and said, I love this. this I, don't, I, I just like, I like Jesus generally speaking, but these are the things that I think just make Jesus real. Because Jesus, now imagine what the, the angel could have said. The angel could have talked about, you know, Jesus conquered death and aren't you paying attention and death is the great you know, shadow over all humanity and it could have been a great poem and a great song and the angel could have done all sorts of stuff and he just says, hey, he's not here. He rose. Look at the hole. Go tell him. And Jesus, as they're running, filled with anxiety and filled with joy and filled with fear and filled with all that stuff and they're running as fast as they can. They run into Jesus and Jesus goes, hey. <laughs> that's, it's essentially, that's really. It's like what... It's like how you would greet somebody just passing them in the grocery store. It's so simple. And you almost expect Jesus to go, here I am, behold, it is me. And Jesus goes to these two ladies filled with emotional intensity. Greetings. Hey, good morning. As if his conquering of Satan, sin, and death was that hard. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Now, if you were to give a definition of worship, worship is simply 
ascribing the highest value to something. This is why when biblical commentators and those who write about the reality of our sanctification journey and becoming more into the image of Christ, one of the things they recognize is one of the central realities of who we are is that we are all worshipers. No matter on Sunday, if you raise your hands or sing quiet, whether you silently meditate or you shout out loud the truths of the things that we sing, one of the things that happens in this room, one of the things that is always happening in the life and your world is that you are always worshiping. You are always ascribing worth to things. Your heart always works to say, this is beautiful, this is awful, this is tremendous, I hate this. Those are all of our hearts. And these women who are filled with conflicting emotions see Christ and they fall at his feet and they worship him. And they declare his ultimate value. And in light of the resurrection, there is no more appropriate response to Jesus than worship. There is no greater response because if Jesus has eliminated the great threat of death that is coming for you and it is coming for me, if he has conquered it and death up to this point has been six billion and oh, death is now six billion and one. And death has lost this battle. And the only natural response to those who lay hold of Jesus is to orient their entire life around him. Verse 10, watch what Jesus says, something similar to what the angel says. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will what? They'll see me. Well, why is it that both the angel has given a message of Jesus' resurrection and a promise that they will see and experience Jesus, and Jesus has now told these women the very same thing that they just experienced. Now, don't be afraid. Watch what he says. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. See, one of the, the message of the resurrection is not just a spiritual theory. It's not just a fable. It's not some merely spiritual reality that didn't happen in time and space and in a real place called Israel on a real cross by real Romans incited by real chief priests, scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. The Bible is a record of eyewitness accounts of things that happened. Mary and Mary saw him and held his feet for 40 days now, Jesus will begin to teach. He will appear to 500 witnesses at one time. He'll appear to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And what the Bible is, is a record of the eyewitnesses' accounts of those. If, you're, if you are not a part of our church, we've been in the book of Luke, and Luke is a consummate researcher and has done the work to find out and interview the people who were there, who saw Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who heard the stories of his family, who watched his miracles. So that when we come to the Bible, we don't just feel good about ourselves on Resurrection Sunday because, oh, it's great, it's a fun story. It's reminding ourselves of truths that happened in time and space that weren't done. The apostles say later in the book of Acts, these things weren't done in a corner. They're done so that the eyewitnesses might give evidence of the fact that we saw him. He's not dead. The tomb's empty. He's alive. We were there. 
So don't allow this story to rest on your heart to go, boy, that's a nice spiritual idea. No, it's the record of real men, real women who saw him, talked to him, watched him walk out of the grave, watched him teach, watched him invest for the next 40 days in the lives of those who followed him. But before Matthew closes this book, that's pretty good, right? One to ten? Not bad? You know, eh, you decide. Before Matthew closes this book, you almost expect all the French horn section to play here, right? All the triumphant music to rise. And you expect the disciples strong in faith, not doubting anymore, casting off all of their anxieties and their fears to march behind Christ, go to the mountain where he told them he would meet them, receive the great commission, and preach the gospel in all the earth. But before Matthew gives that, which is actually the second, or it's actually the final paragraph, which we're not even going to look at today, he gives you verses 11 through 15. And the question is, why are verses 11 through 15 there? They're almost a throwaway passage. It almost doesn't matter. You could read from verse 10 right into verse 16 and say, we're going to pick up the story with the disciples meeting Jesus on the way to Galilee. But Matthew pauses the account as if to say he's done with the disciples, he's done with the angel, he's done with the Marys, and we're going to go and hear another story. We're going to hear people take this account and put a spin on it. Look at verse 11. While they were going, as these women are leaving this scene to go and tell the disciples, as they have worshipped at the feet of the risen Christ, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. You don't know how many of they were, how many stayed there, we don't know, but several of them decided... Something happened. Pretty sure we saw an angel, felt an earthquake. Pretty sure he rolled open the tomb. Pretty sure Jesus wasn't there. Pretty sure this is going to mean our jobs. Now the soldiers head into the city and they tell the chief priest what has taken place. Now if you read this through from Matthew 28 verse 1 all the way down through 28 verse 15, you're going to see the word tell which is a common word. It's a six different times in this story uh, of Matthew's account, someone is telling something. Someone is telling something to someone else. The angel tells the women. This is where you're going to see Jesus. Jesus tells the women, this is what you're going to do. The women are meant to go and tell the disciples. And now the, the soldiers wake up and they decide to head into the, into the city to tell this story to the chief priests and to tell them all that had taken place. And at this point, the facts aren't in question, are they? They've been experienced and seen by multiple eyewitnesses, both the guards, both of the Marys, at least some other people who were there that we know from other gospel accounts. We all experienced the earthquake. We all saw the angel. We all saw the tomb rolled back. We all saw him sitting on it. We all looked into the empty tomb and Jesus wasn't there. We all saw our brothers in arms, the other soldiers. They were there with us at the time. The facts aren't in question. And what is about to happen is one of the greatest examples of a media campaign ever. Verse 12. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel. What kind of counsel do you think needs to be given in the context of these religious leaders? 
the soldiers, hey, we saw something. It was wild. It was crazy. Couldn't do anything. I was catatonic, frozen with fear, like a dead man. Weren't you supposed to be guarding a dead man? Yeah, but I was like a dead man. He was not dead. I was dead. I was laying there. So, saw an angel, saw some ladies. Angel, real scary. We're here. The body's gone. What do you want us to do? We got to call our friends. The chief priests, call all their friends, get the elders, get the soldiers. They're all talking. They're all taking counsel. They're all deciding, what are we going to do with this moment? What are we going to decide? And they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. It's the same the word for money. There is the same word for money that is used when the chief priests bribe Judas to betray Jesus. So the chief priests and the leaders who at Jesus' crucifixion said, come down from the cross. Let's watch God save you and then we'll believe in you. We're mocking Christ. They weren't really ready for a miracle of this magnitude. What they decide is that we're going to pay off the soldiers. And they said, tell people, there it is again, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Now asking soldiers who are meant to be guarding a tomb where a guy who was dead is now alive, and asking them to lie about that event is basically asking the soldiers to commit career suicide. We know from other places in the scriptures, when Peter gets let out of prison and Herod interviews the guards who were meant to be guarding them, he interviews them, then he executes them for losing a prisoner. So the chief priests are asking these soldiers to concoct a story that almost certainly would, in any other scenario, would guarantee that their lives are forfeit. And here's the story that they're asking them to confess. They're asking them to confess that rolling a large stone away from the tomb didn't wake anybody up. They're asking them to confess that there was no angel. They're asking them to confess that there was no earthquake. They were asking them to confess that the disciples who were too scared to attend the crucifixion, and also couldn't stay up with Jesus to pray the night before, somehow woke up early, somehow infiltrated a band of soldiers while they were asleep, all rolled the stone away from the mouth of the tomb without waking anybody up, grabbed the dead body, uh, and left before any of the soldiers were awake. Not to mention... If you're asleep, how do you know who stole the body? I mean, we aren't even trying, guys. Here's the story. You were asleep. What happened when you were asleep? Well, uh, I definitely know it was the disciples. Who? I was asleep. I don't know. The disciples stole the body. That's the story we're going with. So here's, this, here's the new story. Here's the story that gets pumped out among the Jews that Matthew says here in a moment will be circulated to that day. Jesus didn't rise. You were asleep. The disciples stole the body. And here's the promise. You notice how this new story also involves a promise that we will keep you out of trouble. All you need to do is build your life on this lie. And it will protect you. If it makes its way to the governor's ears, we will protect you. Verse 15, so they took the money. And they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew writes in about A.D. 60, which means this, for Matthew's readers, is about a 30-year rumor. 
This is the story that the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the soldiers, the political machine, the religious machine, the military machine has been telling for three decades. Now, why is this here? Now, in part, certainly it's here for Matthew to combat the rumor mill that's going around about Jesus. But why is it that Jesus' resurrection is put right next to Issues of integrity, ethics, morality, honesty, stewarding your influence, military integrity, uh, telling the truth at work. Why is it the resurrection is right next to human realities that we all feel all the time? Build your life on this lie, and if it gets its way to the governor's ears, we will keep you out of trouble. Do you know what that keep you, keep you out of trouble is? Oh, that phrase is only mentioned one other time, and it's mentioned over in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's translated like this, so that you might be free from anxiety. So Matthew shows you the other side of the resurrection story and says, here's what you've got to do. You've got to build your life on a lie, to squash down the anxiety and the fear that so easily will rise in your heart. And you've got to tell a false story. And don't worry, we'll give you money to protect you. We'll make sure your career is secure. All you've got to do is build your life on a lie. Now, we talk about these things in our church. We talk about integrity. We talk about the truth. We talk about repentance. We talk about faith. We talk about the grace of God. But if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, that me, then I, as a pastor, really have nothing to say about, to, about anything in your life, about whether or not you should live a life of integrity or not, right? Who cares? If Jesus didn't defeat, defeat Satan, sin, and death, if Jesus didn't conquer the grave, well, how does it matter? why does it matter how we live? Why in the world would we repent of sin if the one who took our sin is still in the grave? But here is this story of the resurrection bound by the facts of this moment, experienced by eyewitnesses, put right next to the things that you and I feel that are so pressing in our lives every day. Do you ever feel the temptation not to live honestly about who you are? Do you ever face the temptation to misuse the authority and the influence that you've been given? Do you ever face the temptation to want to be viewed by others as more impressive and more influential? Do you ever use money to conceal the reality of your spiritual poverty? And what Matthew is doing is putting the resurrection next to these things that you and I feel so viscerally every single day as if to say the best thing that you can do is build your life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has died, buried, and been raised for you. Because it's only the truth of the resurrection as it takes up residence in the middle of our hearts that allow us to navigate using our money, that allow us to navigate having integrity, that allow us to navigate kindness toward our spouse and toward our kids, that allow us to navigate life in the church where we're called to encourage and to build up one another instead of critiquing and tearing down. Unless Jesus was crucified for sinners like me, I have no hope 
of personal change. Unless Jesus was raised for sinners like me, these issues in my life will have the last word and I will live a lie. But if Jesus has been crucified, dead, buried, and raised, then the central message of the Christian faith is do not fear. There is hope. Go and tell. Amen? That's the center of our message. Jesus had to die for sin, but the story isn't over. He was raised, what the Bible says, for our justification. So now, the echo out of the heart that is focused on Jesus' resurrection for me is that I no longer have fear. I'm filled with great hope. And now my call is to go and tell the story of someone that you can know who can forgive your sins, who can heal your heart, who can displace the stories that live in the center of who we are that I've got to make up for my past. I've got to be better than my parents. I've got to achieve more at work. No one will love me because of what I've done. And if you move his death, burial, and resurrection in the center of your life, those false stories fall away, and they're as laughable as this one is. Because now you walk in freedom. Now you walk in hope. Now you walk confident of the fact that Jesus loves you and gave his life for you and has been risen from the dead. So, what kind of church would we be if that kind of comfort, if that kind of rescue lived in the middle of our hearts? What kind of hope could we offer our friends and our neighbors if we were really to believe and to live the fact that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, but he was raised for me? This is why the beating heart of the Christian church is not try hard and I hope it works out. But the beating heart of the Christian Christian church is do not fear, go and tell. So I would be remiss if I wasn't to close this service to talk about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ today. If nobody's ever talked to you about this story and about how the resurrection is good news, Paul, the apostle, sums it up. Somebody who met Christ, who was who talked face to face with Jesus Christ. He sums it up in his letter to the Romans where he says this, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and confession is basically in the Greek that it means to say the same thing as. It's to confess that what God says about Jesus, you say about Jesus. It's to align our confession with Jesus is the one who has been crucified for sinners, which is what the angel said. Jesus is the one who died the death I deserve. Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. And now I orient my life and worship around him, who he is and what he has said. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See, that's only half of it if I believe he was crucified. The other half is my heart giving testimony and laying hold of the fact that he has been raised for my justification. And if you believe that in your heart, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's our hope for you as a church on this Easter morning. That you might hear the good news that you don't have to fear. There is hope in Jesus. And it's our great joy to go and tell. Father.
we pause this morning, giving thanks for the resurrection. Giving thanks that you have been crucified on the cross in our place for our sin. And we as a church pause and confess the fact that we need the hope of the resurrection to wash over our minds and hearts again, to be reminded of the greatest story in human history that Jesus Christ bled and died for sinners and has been risen from the dead as evidence that all of our sins are forgiven, that you've accepted the sacrifice that he has made for us. And that we as a church are now filled with hope and are commissioned to go and preach the gospel to the whole world, to our friends, our neighbors, our kids, our spouses, those that we are in school with. And Father, I would pray for those this morning who are feeling discouraged and maybe despairing because of things that have happened in their story, that they would hear the good news that Jesus loves them, that Jesus died for them, and that Jesus was raised again that they might walk in newness of life with that story of Jesus' love and forgiveness being the tuning fork of their life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.